Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast season two. My name is Birgit Tremmer-Werner. And I'm Martin Diesenberry. In this season, we are talking about wealth and the writing of history. We are delighted to have with us today Dr. Eva Brucker, Ambizione Research Fellow at the Department of History at the University of Zürich. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So Eva, in your research, you're trying to understand how early modern markets functioned. You argued that economic history for the early modern period is not only about supply and demand, but it's also about projecting, about the ideas of longing, and also about regulations. In your new research project, you work on the Dutch colony in New Amsterdam in North America. Could you first tell us why New Amsterdam? What's so special about the Dutch in the Atlantic? Um, I think the Dutch in the Atlantic um, are a very good example to uh, study how a colonial project in the 17th century was uh, promoted and how um, did the people involved in this project deal with the uncertainty and the risks of early modern projects. And by this, I think you can study pretty well uh, how did they establish and um, stabilize markets. That led me, uh, leads me to uh, North America, especially to New York, what was in the beginning of the 17th century, New Amsterdam, the Dutch colony. And um, I made a um, first research trip in 2015. And uh, while, I was, uh, when, uh, while I went to the archives, um, I realized that I'm not able to write a history about uh, early modern projecting in New Amsterdam or in New Netherland without writing a history on the emerging of markets and without writing a history about beaver fur. So beaver fur would be one of these commodities that is part of this economic history of the Dutch colony. Who are the agents involved and why is beaver such an important commodity? What is it used for? I guess we can keep this short. The Europeans were crazy about the wide-brimmed felted beaver hats in the 17th century. Um, they decorated these hats with um, thick ribbons, with buttons, gold applications, and feathers. The beaver fur hats were worn in the beginning of the 17th century by, mostly by traders and company soldiers. And this was a new and aspiring and wealthy class. So. Um, they expressed their wealth with a material that was on the one hand their main trading commodity and on the other hand, um, because it did not fall under any sumptuary laws, it was pretty easy to express the standing of a new and wealthy class to this time. And the North American beaver turned out to be much better than the European beaver fur at this time because of three reasons. Um, the first reason was the better quality. So the um, North American animals were bigger than the European animals and they had a thicker uh, felt or thicker hairs. Um, the second reason is it seemed in the beginning of the 17th century an unlimited quantity of beaver fur because at this time there were hardly no beaver in Europe um, anymore. Um, and the third reason is um, the fells, the North American fells were well prepared because the indigenes already used them as uh, hunting apparel for one tr hunting season. So they were really smooth 
and they were pretty easy to produce into felt. So that means that these early Dutch merchants, they bought directly from the indigenous population that they met on the ground. Yes, they do. And I guess it is pretty important to um, underline that the indigenes were not only um, a simple uh, supplier of a resource, because they had the expertise to um, make the skin smooth. And this was really important because otherwise the Europeans, or before the Europeans, uh, needed to ship their fells to Russia. And uh, Russian furriers had to prepare the skins into felt. So with the North American beaver fur, it was much easier to still the European demand for the beaver hats. That's a very interesting point, and I think that example shows very well the different dimensions and connections that here that were at work here. So your project is called The Promises of the Market, and you're interested in the creation of a market and how different actors, agents, investors, merchants projected a market. But that story sounds so extremely different from the story or from parts of the story that we heard here on the podcast about Dutch merchants in Asia, especially about the East India Company merchants. Is there a way for you to say very briefly what is the difference between these Dutch merchants going west, going uh, crossing the Atlantic and the East India Company? I guess the main difference is that the Dutch colonial project uh, in North America failed because the takeover from the English was in 1664, and this was the end. And it also was the end of the first generation of the West India Company. So um, they get, got bankrupt. Um, and so what we now remember as the golden age of the West India Company was the second generation, and it was mainly based on the slave trade with the Caribbeans. Yeah. So, first generation, in the time from the colony, it was between 1609 with the uh, expansion trip from um, Henry Hudson until the end to 1664. It was a really um, unsure and really preliminary situation of a colony. And this is, I guess, the main difference to the the history of the successful colonies from the East India Company. So to some extent, and it's also the difference of scale. Yeah. But I guess in a way about talking about difference and comparing the two India companies, we reproduce all the narratives that you are actually trying to counter with your research. Could you tell us a bit about what are the narratives about the history of New Netherland? Um, well, uh, research interested in the economic context of early modern colonial enterprises tends to either judge the history of particular colonies as successful, as we have seen uh, in Asia, and therefore valuable for the development of worldwide empires, or they dismisses them as failed colonial ambitions. Um, this holds also true for the Dutch colonies, uh, the Dutch colony in New Amsterdam. Um, research either focus on the failure of the WIC and the takeover by the English, or they emphasize the importance of Dutch heritage for the modern economic and cultural development of today's New York State. So you mean there that they think of the New Netherlands as a kind of 
prehistory of today's New York. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And your work is trying to counter those two narratives. Uh, my approach tries not to judge from our today's point of view whether the colony of New Netherland was successful or not. I'm interested how the people, institutions, and nations who were involved dealt with the uncertainties and the risks of the colonial projects. And thereby, it is really helpful for me to work with contemporary practices, especially, or in particular, I I'm studying the practice of projecting, because the practice of projecting entangled the promises and hopes of investments with the uncertainty of colonial enterprises. All right, so projecting here, I mean, to a layman, it just sounds like it's saying this is what will happen in the future, we think, and then we hedge our bets, uh, and therefore we hedge our investments. Is it actually more complicated than that? Is there a particular set of uh, practices, economic practices, that goes into this in the early modern period? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely sure there is a difference, and especially there is a difference because, uh, between our today's understanding of projects and the early modern practice of projecting, because the early modern practice of projecting is not so much interested in the, uh, in the realization of a project. It's more the dealing with uncertainties and the dealing with risks from projects, in my case, in particular, colonial projects. Can you give a specific example of how a particular risk is dealt with? Yeah, um, of course. So. Um, uh, one of the main challenges the colony, from the colony or of the colony of New Netherland was to find permanent settlers in the 17th century. So it wasn't so easy to convince um, Dutch people to leave their home in the Dutch Golden Age and to go to North America um, where they don't know exactly what to expect. So um, there was... Um, a big uh, promoting and advertising strategy from the WIC and the Dutch government to convince people to settle to New Netherland. Um, they uh, designed uh, a picture of New Netherland as a successful and comfortable land where the people can live pretty similar than in the Netherlands um, and get access to profitable markets. These whole ideas and these whole strategies they used for marketing this new project, they were especially designed for New Netherland, or were there any precedences, were there any examples that they used? Mm. Yeah, so they compared um, the vision of New Netherland to uh, Asian colonies, and they uh, underlined the similarities of climate, of temperature, of the trees the people will find. And I also compared to the English um, attempts to settle in North America and um, yeah, by, by emphasizing how to avoid um, um, the mistakes um, and how to, to become a successful colony. Amaya, also ask then, what uh, is the position given to indigenous peoples in this vision of the New Netherlands colony. Yeah, so the indigenous people were very important um, for um, 
the traders as well as the settlers, um, because it was important, uh, the relationship was important for a peaceful uh, living in the colony, but also they had the expertise um, for hunting and preparing the fells. So, um, for example, it's pretty interesting to look at the demands of the indigenous people, because um, they desired and uh, they desired mainly textiles, and it wasn't. It was a, a big problem to transfer and translate the, their the visions of design to the Europeans and to the European market, so that the European market can produce the textiles, because they were not interested in cloth. They only were interested in textiles, in woolen, cotton, and cotton textiles, because they were not able to produce them by their own. But this is very interesting, because it, it gives quite a different vision of the relationship between the European metropole and the New World colony than what we generally have, which is that the New World produced raw materials for European consumers. In fact, you're saying uh, partly that indigenous peoples are crucial to the production of advanced felts for the European market, and also they are consumers of European wares. They don't just want uh, European yes. simple cloth designs, right? Yeah. So uh, are you, through this case study, actually trying to rethink a relationship between yeah. the metropole and indigenous peoples? Yeah, yeah, definitely. and. And there are, uh, there are a lot of uh, examples that underline uh, this new perspective. Because, uh, for example, if you look at the regulations, because indigenous people were not regulated in a way that they were not able to trade in the city of New Amsterdam or alongside today's Hudson River. So they had the right to, go to, um, to act as free agents there. Um, so, and I think that that's, uh, yeah, that emphasizes uh, the, the, the role of indigenous people in this kind of trade, and they were much more than simply uh, suppliers of resources. And I guess that leads to one of the questions we always ask here at this podcast. What are the sources that you use in order to get your answers? How do you write the history of projecting? The main challenge for my research is that uh, all documents or more almost all documents from the first generation of the WIC um, are destroyed. So um, I cannot use this official um, trading um, records, but I do have extensive family and trading correspondences. Um, I do have letters, inventories, pamphlets, and charters. And I also work with visual depictions and material artifacts. And how do you get the indigenous people's perspective from such sources? Um, for example, um, I do have um, beaver amulets worn by the, um, by the indigenous people. Um, and they were, these amulets were worn by traders, native traders. Um, and they were produced from metal. So one of the commodities they exchanged with the Europeans. And they have, um, sometimes there are short, uh, uh, there are some letters written on them, like the, the HBC for the Hudson's Bay Company or NY for New York, so that you can see where they traded with whom. So you've made a very convincing case that the focus that you have on projecting is partly about 
the language that historians use and how we shouldn't use an anachronistic language of marketing, but it's also about trying to imagine ourselves into a completely different world where risks are much higher to do with long-distance trade, which I suppose provokes a much bigger question, which is, would you say that projecting is, in many ways, the key to understanding global wealth creation in the early modern period, or would you say it's simply specific to the Atlantic case study that you have now? Mm. Well, I would argue that projecting is one important key to understanding global wealth, because projecting turns uncertain enterprises into an investment and hence creates value. Um, the practice of projecting helps us to link pre-modern and pre-capitalistic societies to modern and capitalistic societies. With focus on the, project, uh, on the practice of projecting, it becomes clear that not only trading companies and share corporations were developed in the early modern period, as well the dealing with risk and uh, importance of uh, promises and hopes were also part of economic behavior in the 17th century. And thereby, I think, um, studying the practice of projecting can contribute to a new history of capitalism that focuses more on economic practices than on epochal categorizations. Eva Brugger, thank you very much. Thank you very much.